You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. What the Eyes Don't See is a book written by Dr. Mona Hana-Atisha. She's a, a Michigan pediatrician who played a key role in uncovering missteps of regulators who were supposed to protect public health. In the case of the town of Flint, a whole community ingested lead after a key chemical failed to be added to their drinking water system. Dr. Mona Hana-Atisha is in Honolulu for a free public talk at the University of Hawaii Thursday night at the Manoa campus. She's passionate about the cause of clean drinking water after discovering that her patients are being poisoned by the lead in their water pipes. It happened after Flint switched their water source. Hannah Atisha's story has been featured on 60 Minutes and in a recent TED Talk. She shares how it took activism in the community to solve the mystery, in her words, of what was messing with children's possibilities and why what you drink could affect how you think. I've had this amazing privilege of testifying before Congress several times about about Flint, but also about drinking water and drinking water safety for our whole nation. And something I said the last time I testified was Flint's water crisis wasn't the first, it wasn't the worst, and unfortunately it wasn't the last. So we have continued to see water crises throughout our country that have so many parallels. And the most important parallel is that they could have been prevented. And so when I hear about other water crises like what's happened here in Hawaii, I'm heartbroken. I'm sad, but I'm not surprised. But it also, you know, translates very much into our ability to to work to prevent the next crisis. And there's been so many kind of glimmers of hope in our investment in water infrastructure nationally, the amazing voice of activists being raised, the words environmental justice are part of our national lexicon now. So I'm, you know, there's glimmers of hope that hopefully we will not continue to see these crises, but I'm not surprised that they continue to happen. You know, when I first moved here, I heard a lot about how wonderful Hawaii's water is and their competitions and Hawaii's water would come out on top. So there was this sense of pride about how pure our water is and how good it is and how sweet it is. And Mm. then to have this crisis and to watch all these families have to leave their homes because they couldn't drink the water, they couldn't bathe in it. It's stunning when you think of how it could affect your health. Absolutely. You know, Water is a medical and public health necessity. So, you know, first and foremost, I'm a pediatrician. Our, our you know, our, our bodies are almost 70% water. We need safe water to to survive and to, and to be healthy. Um, and I think for so long, not just here in Hawaii, but all over, we, we assumed that when we turn on our tap, our water is safe. Uh, in my head, I pictured these scientists and lab coats measuring our water, you know, and testing it and for all these different kind of things and that we as taxpayers, you know, support this public health infrastructure, right, to make sure that wherever we are, that our water is safe. And, and something that I learned after what happened in Flint is that we can do better, that our environmental regulations are inadequate, they are not fully protective, and they're, you know, they're not, they haven't caught up with the science. So there's, you know, a great opportunity here for us to strengthen regulations, to put public health at the foremost, which it often is not, and to make sure that once again, no matter where we live, we turn our tap and we have confidence that's what's coming out of our tap is not going to hurt us today, and it's not going to impact us for, for decades to come. I must say, though, when I remember first hearing about the Flint, Michigan water crisis, I just thought, oh, that's 
Michigan, you know, mm. it's not here in Hawaii. Mm. And yet, you know, these days we're hearing about those forever chemicals yes. and how they, you know, are in our water. And the EPA's just put in a bunch of money to start monitoring and testing and reduce the levels. But you think about what we ingest and, you know, you say you're a pediatrician. I mm. think about the women who breastfeed their yes. children and you're like, yes. <gasps> yeah, yeah. You know, it was also kind of a shock that this happened in Michigan. So I don't know how many Michiganders are listening, but like I'm, I'm holding up my hand right now. And Michigan's the state. So, Catherine, we are surrounded by the largest source of fresh water in the world. We are surrounded by the Great Lakes. So 21% of the fresh water in the world is around Michigan. And this terrible water crisis happened in our state. So if it can happen, you know, in Michigan, it, it can happen all over. And there's so much that, once again, that we don't know about our drinking water quality. Um, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. You know, we just assume that it's okay, but we don't even know that these forever chemicals, we're just starting to think about what the safe level should be. And really, once again, there shouldn't be any safe level. These are poisons. But we're, we don't even know how to protect people from these poisons that we've put into our drinking water and our air and our food for decades, not not because we care about kids, but because industries were making a lot of money. So how do we shift that mindset? How do we shift public health protection to care for our most vulnerable populations rather than you know continuing to line you know the, the you know the profits of certain industries? And then Flint, we were talking about lead mm. and the fact that lead you know does affect the way you think, yeah. you know, if you ingest it. Yeah. Um, what was the aha moment for you as you were going through this whole crisis back then? Oh, that's a great question, Catherine. So, you know, I was going about my busy business as a pediatrician caring for our kiddos. And so much of my work as a pediatrician is like making sure kids are healthy today, like, you know, treating their stuffles and their broken bones and giving them their, you know, vaccines. But, but so much of what my job as a pediatrician is making sure that our kids have the brightest tomorrow possible, right? It's about ensuring their health and safety so that they can have that wide-eyed potential that they dream of. And then one night in my house with a high school girlfriend who, of all things, happened to be a drinking water expert. She was back in town. We were hanging out. And she's like, hey, Mona, like, you know, you were in Flint. I'm like, yes, I work in Flint. And she's like, you know, I just found out that, you know, Flint changed its water source to save money and that the water's, you know, has problems. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, my patients are complaining about, like, rashes and skin things. But all the folks in charge, all the scientists, all the folks from all these important agencies are saying everything's okay. And then that that one moment that changed my life, my friend said, Mona, it sounds like the water's not being treated properly. I'm like, okay. And she's like, they did not add this really important chemical called corrosion control. And she stares at me, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And she's like, without that chemical, lead from our plumbing will come out of the plumbing and go into the water. And, and that is the moment that my life literally changed as a pediatrician, as a public health person. Like, we know what lead does. It's a poison. It has no safe level. It's it's a form of environmental racism. It, it erodes cognition and twists behavior. There is no safe level of lead. Even decades ago, oh, when I was starting out as a doctor, we thought there was an okay amount of lead. But there isn't. There's none. Even tiny amounts can, can mess up the potential of children. So that kind of was the moment that I stopped sleeping, I stopped drinking, and I kind of quickly did the research to see if it was getting into our, the bodies of our children, which it was. So, you know, when I heard the possibility of a poison that was threatening the tomorrows of my kids, that was my aha moment, because not just as a 
pediatrician, you know, yeah, I took an oath to protect kids, but this is about... It's about who we are and who we want to be and what kind of society we want to live in. So that's kind of what my story is about. It's not just about, hey, this water crisis in Flint, but it's about all of us and, and ultimately how, how we take care of each other. You know, we've heard about lead in paint, right? Yeah. And there are those little kits you can buy to yeah. check the, the paint if you live in an old house. But yeah, the fact that it was in, in their water and people were consuming it for such a long time is frightening. And here, you know, like I said, new chemicals on the scene. Well, they're not really new chemicals. It's just that we didn't know enough about the long-term effects? Well, we allowed them to be spit out into the environment without testing them. So I'm going to tell a, a real quick story about one of my favorite heroes, Alice Hamilton. She was a physician a century ago, the first woman professor at Harvard. She went after the, the lead industry in the 1920s when they were putting lead in gasoline. Also, uh, General Motors, Flint, Michigan kind of problem. So she was saying a century ago, we, we can't put lead in gasoline. It's going to create this global public health disaster, which it did. And the apologist scientists at General Motors made a deal with the Surgeon General. And they said, you know, if you can prove that lead is bad, we'll take it out. And that set forth this kind of philosophy in public health that we assume things are safe until proven dangerous. And that persists to this day. And we have allowed the unchecked use of thousands and thousands of thousands of bad things and we put the onus on scientists and parents and you know academics to prove something is bad and even when we prove something is bad it is almost impossible to regulate we see that with PFAS and these forever chemicals and kind of and lead you know it, it's impossible to regulate and it's impossible to undo the damage that has been done yeah so innocent until proven guilty exactly but you just think of all these different chemicals that are out there in the environment I mean we had something here not too long ago uh, mercury yeah you know, in some of these switch stations. And then kids got into the mercury. Oh, look at this cool thing. And wow, look, it can, like, you oh. know, how pretty it is. And they're handling it. And then they just don't realize the, you know, the, the risk and the hazards with that. Right. And um, it doesn't have to be this way. We can have stronger protections. We can instead be governed not by innocent until proven guilty, but rather let's assume something is not safe until we can prove it's safe. So this is what is known as the precautionary principle, which is how we should be governed in public health health and environmental health and children's health, you know, first and foremost should be the protection of, of people and our environment. For a time there, people, I don't think, really valued public health yeah. and how important, you know, whether it's infectious disease yeah. or, you know, when you think of medieval days and yeah. what was killing people and yep. it was the water system, right? Yep, yep, yeah. There's a great section of my book about what, another one of my heroes, uh, John Snow and, and cholera and, and his detective work to figure out that it was, you know, the contaminated water rather than what was assumed to be the cause of cholera, which was miasma, stinky air. Um, so we've learned a lot, but not even going, you know, decades, decades past, just most recently, if we look at the pandemic, we've undered value and underinvested in public health for a long time. Some of the same lessons that happened in Flint are the lessons in the pandemic that are your lessons, you know, here, you know, in Hawaii. We just haven't put into place investments to keep people healthy, you know, with and with kind of an eye towards towards equity and, and prevention. So there's a lot that we can learn. Here in Hawaii, you know, we heard 
national security as a reason why we couldn't get information about uh, the spills at uh, the Red Hill underground fuel tank facility. And it's still being used. We're not, you know, getting reports fast enough. And, and there's this push for the military to be transparent. So I don't know. How are you looking at that when, when they say national security? Uh, yeah. Sorry, we can't tell you. Yeah, no, I think something else that we also learned was the need for transparency. We used a lot of citizen science in Flint. We had amazing moms and dads and activists and pastors doing a lot of the, the water science that brought the crisis to light because we couldn't depend on, on government. They were too slow. They weren't forthcoming in their information. So we need to have these other routes of information. We need to have, for example, third-party validation. This is also this incredible opportunity where academia can step in. I, as an academic, had this kind of academic freedom to be able to do this science and to be almost like a check and balance to, to government or and or you know and or military. So I think there's other things that we should look at to be able to make sure that people have the information in their hands so that they can make the decisions informed by timely and transparent data. Dr. Mona Hanna-Otisha is in Honolulu as part of the University of Hawaii's Better Tomorrow speaker series. The Flint Water Whistleblower was also named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. You'll find links to Thursday's talk at the Orvis Auditorium on the conversation page of our website later today. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. It is 36 feet in diameter, uses over 6 million Italian glass tiles, and it's on public display at the Hawaii State Capitol. If you've ever been on site, you've probably encountered Tadashi Sato's large mosaic entitled Aquarius. Originally installed in 1969, it's located in an open space courtyard, the Rotunda, and the elements have not retreated this piece kindly. It's been replaced twice in the last 50 years. The first time was in 1988, when ponding water and inadequate space for the piece to expand and contract led to cracking, heaving, and failure of the tiles and mortarbed. According to the State Foundation of Culture and the Arts, the second overhaul implemented a new system of drains, expansion joints, mortarbed, and thicker tiles to increase the mosaic's durability. At that time, 600,000 mosaic pieces were used to update Sato's masterpiece. For today's quiz, we want to know the year the last renovation on Aquarius took place. Think you know? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag.
support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as Women in Need on Kauai. NareetHawaii.com. On the cusp of change, post-pandemic downtown Honolulu, turning the corner as the next frontier of redevelopment. We continue our adaptive reuse week with a candid conversation with Avalon's Christine Camp. The development company recently purchased the iconic Davies Pacific Center. Many powerhouse law firms and businesses call it home, but many of those commercial tenants don't want to leave. And so the first five floors will remain as office condos. The rest will be mostly one bedroom and some two bedroom units. The beauty of this project is that it's a 22-story building that has two components to it. There's what we call the podium, five stories that are wrapping around the parking garage with tree-lined views, and it's really nice. It would direct access to each level of parking. So we felt that that would just remain as commercial space over time. But there's the tower, which we thought we could um, you know, segment off and make that into residential to feed the need of um, you know, having workforce housing in downtown. So uh, we are looking at developing about 442 units, 26 units per floor. However, we're accommodating a lot of these tenants who do want to stay. So for every floor that we delay, it's you know 26 units that we're not going to build. So most of the floors will be built at the same time. There will be a few floors which we would wait for those tenants to uh, complete their tenancy and then help them relocate before we you know, complete that project. So it may be a little longer project than we would like, but we certainly want to work around you know, our community, which includes our tenants. And we're up here on the 14th floor. You've got a spectacular view of Honolulu Harbor. You've got the Dillingham Transportation Building down here, uh, You know the Amfac Building. I mean, it's really a lot of the history of downtown Honolulu. Oh yes, so you have that his beautiful historic building, um, Dillingham Transport Building right across. On the other side of Bishop Street is um, Alexander and Baldwin Building, and next to it is Sea Brewer Building. And these are all beautiful historic low rises that are surrounding it to help us create a community in this block. So when we look at downtown core, as you know, Bishop Street is the core for financial district. So we're looking at maintaining our address for our commercial tenants that prestigious Bishop Street address. But for our residents, we take up a whole block. So it's Bishop Street, Queen Street, Merchant Street, and Alakea Street. So we're looking at having Merchant Street be kind of the food and beverage, after hour, you know, the, the really street frontage, street facing eateries that really livens a district. And then the other side, the Queen Street, would be the quiet street, which would be right across a historic building, and we would have a quiet entrance for the residents, and they might have a Queen Street address, and the Bishop Street address will remain for the commercial tenants that remain here. And so what's your timetable like? Because if you're waiting for some of your tenants 
leases to expire? I mean, how soon could you get construction going? Well, as you can see, this particular floor is completely vacant. And there are several floors that are nearly or completely vacant. The beauty of this particular project's conversion is that this project was already anticipated for a conversion before we purchased it. So there was a lot of thought and planning for allowing relocation rights for the landlord with our tenants. And the tenants accepted those um, relocation you know, provisions. So we can allow them to maintain, but we can relocate them to an area that will remain as commercial in perpetuity or to, along the duration of what they need. So it's already been kind of planned. So we just need to work through with those tenants for their relocation so that we can build our floors. And so we anticipate that at least 10 floors will be built, 260 units can be built in one swoop. However, we're in the same permit you know, cycle as anyone else. Doesn't matter whether you're you know, delivering 400 affordable units or doing you know, luxury housing, you still have to follow through on your permit process. Doesn't matter that you're developing brand new ground up or existing building, we still have to follow through the same process and same duration of review. So we expect that our permits will not be available for another year to year and a half. So our expected case is that it's the permitting will be a year from now. Our long case is a year and a half from now. And then we can start construction. So as you can see, as a developer, we're sitting on these vacancies. So this building is about 38% vacant. So we're paying for the common area expenses, the property taxes, the security, the air conditioning, all of that is needed for an entire building. We're paying for 38% of the vacancy while waiting for permits um, to be processed. And time is money, <laughs> you know? And yeah. we're, we're talking about the possibility of self-certifying projects, you know, with the architects and the engineers, but I don't know how difficult that is in a building like this, which is already built. Well, it's the self-certification would be very helpful, but you know what I'm concerned about is that right now, due to what's happening in the, in the insurance market, the architects and engineers are having a hard time finding insurance available for condominium projects. There's a lot of liability with dealing with individual owners and condominium associations, you know, as it relates to if you're a designer. So if they're taking a further liability of self-certifying their work, I'm not sure if they can afford the insurance or if that will be passed on to the development. Now, we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're talking about millions of dollars for insurance. So I think some architects and engineers may, may forego that option due to um, the inability to secure insurance that's affordable for them or availability of insurance for them. So it would look to the developer. And I know that I've had conversations with our insurance folks and they said that that wouldn't be available to us. They would not allow the developer to self-certify and take on that liability. In other words, it wouldn't be an insured matter. So what I see for the self-certification, which is great, I think more smaller projects like the single family units or if you're doing you know, electric work or some plumbing job or some small job, that might be available. Um, but for larger jobs with the huge liabilities as well as facing investors that are institutional and you know, institutional bankers, I don't think that that would be an available option for us. The law would have to be a lot more um, nuanced, where they provide some protection for those who, we're not engineers, we don't know all the details. And we rely on, on the engineers, and of course engineers you know, send it through the process to make sure that you know, there's some 
um, third party that's reviewing it. So I'm sure there's a resolution for it. I'm very encouraged by this law because at least it will take all the smaller permits out of the way if they do the self you know, certification process. So that it leaves room and more capacity available for the larger projects to get processed faster. But I don't see that particular bill helping us in a direct way. There are certain things that I will be looking for as more and more office buildings are converted. There are some questions that we have to have related to building codes. Honolulu is the only county in the state, as well as one of the very few municipalities that have a housing code. And so housing code is one that they embedded into our city's building code. That says housing has to have these things required. Now these housing codes were written in in the early 90s, whereas the international building code is adopted and changes with technology and time and research and what have you. So we've had international building codes that were adopted in 2012 and 2018 that gives developers the opportunities to convert office buildings the way they are, as you see them with the windows that are not operable, with air conditioning and mechanical ventilation. But the housing code will not allow us to do that and get it recognized as livable condition. So pushing out all of these existing windows and you know making them all operable and having uh, bedrooms that all have to have a window and, and having living rooms all have to have direct window instead of you know artificial lighting or indirect lighting. Like if you go to Seattle, you may see some you know condominiums where you have a loft condition, you have a bedroom that has a big picture window looking out into the living room. Um, that's considered a bedroom. Here, it's not considered a bedroom. It's considered a non-living space like a den or office. So it makes it very hard for us to monetize the square footages in office buildings. And the more office buildings that we're looking at converting, they're not going to be able to deliver affordable housing because affordable housing has to strictly follow the housing code to get the affordable housing credits. Whereas market housing, right, higher priced homes, can actually consider whatever you want because you're not following the strict housing codes for affordable housing credits. So in my view, that code needs to change. And I understand that there's a lot of discussion around it. And there are other things like existing buildings. When you're built, does it matter whether it needs to have park dedication spaces or not? If you require park dedication for existing buildings or even affordable housing, then there's a significant cost. So this particular building, our park dedication cost for delivering 440 units will be about $18 million. Now, we, I have a choice to write a check to the city for that amount so they can improve parks elsewhere, or I can choose it to have it in this property, but I don't want to burden our residents with all of these park amenities. And I don't feel that the, our residents should pay $18 million into some phantom park that's out there. They, we should be able to use that money to lower our pricing. So I believe those codes or building requirements in the city and county, they should rethink it. Because when you look at 201H, which is an exemption from all the zoning and permitting process, a significant reason why people do that is to get park dedication waivers. 
do we really need it? So time is now. The, the city and county really needs to address this. Oh, yes. So time is now for two reasons, right? The coming of the hybrid work environment where everyone is thinking about reducing their footprint for office usage. You know, there are several companies that I know they're eliminating their, their office completely and some who are doing hybrid and so they no longer need the space that they need. So this building is just tip of the iceberg in the sense that it's 38% vacant and other buildings are almost, you know, 18% vacant with a lot of shadow vacancy, meaning vacancies that are looming and coming up that we're not, we don't yet have it on the market. So we need to think through what are we going to do with these vacant spaces? And if we're clamoring for housing and housing to be built now, shouldn't we look at ways to change our code, to reflect our current environment, to say, can we live in this space? Do you think you can live in this space? I think I can, but it, our windows don't open. And maybe we can make the windows open, but not for every bedroom. So these are some of the things that we need to think through. Do we really need park dedication in downtown core? Or should we make it so that the downtown units are far less expensive and less expensive to maintain overall? Um, you know, if you're buying a one bedroom unit, do you wanna pay $700 a month for your maintenance fees? I would rather pay $300 and forego the swimming pool and that gym, I'll pay $10 to go monthly to a, a gym outside just for social environment. These are things that I think we need to think through as a community. So the message that as a developer you would like to give to the city and county, and what would that be? The message is that we need to be more timely and changing our codes and expectations for what's happening in, in the built environment. That if we want to redevelop the existing projects and, and attract capital to develop more housing, we need to be mindful of the things that stop the housing from getting built. Quite a project ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we're excited and we're up for the challenge. That was developer Christine Camp talking about the barriers to redeveloping the older high-rises in Honolulu. The Davies Pacific Center was built in the 1970s, and the tower is in the process of converting from offices to apartments. And with eyes on potential development in the urban core, the needs for neighborhood basics like a grocery store will grow. Walmart just announced it's shuttering its King Street store next month, leaving a void in the area. As one door closes, opportunity knocks. What is possible for downtown Honolulu? Tomorrow we continue Adaptive Reuse Week and hear from the director of the Department of Planning and Permitting. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to an equitable and thriving Hawaii, supporting initiatives such as affordable housing, fresh water, and the healthy development of young children. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. Today on The Daily, when he retired from Congress, Barney Frank's legacy was a piece of legislation designed to prevent another financial crisis. Now, because of what he's done since, many are asking if Frank helped cause another financial crisis. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs, including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu.
to jail or not to jail. That is what we are turning over on The Long View today. Our contributing editor, Neil Miller, in studio today. Good morning. Good morning. So what got you on this path? Well, two things got me on this path, one of which is that this sounds like a lot of things that not only go on historically, but also really apply to Hawaii. The other thing, and I really want to encourage listeners to do this, this is from a blog that's done by Isaac Saul, S-A-U-L. It, it's in, uh, you'll, you'll be able to get the site. Saul is a journalist who now has his own blog called The Tangle, T-A-N-G-L-E, and every day he does a piece on a major issue where he gathers together what uh, pros and and uh, cons, what dif- different people are saying in, in, in writing. Um, and it's very good. It's better than most of those. And then he has a section about his take. The important thing for you to read it is because he's very careful to be objective about all of these things and you can tell because he loses readers from both ends of the political spectrum because he thinks he goes too far in the other end of the political spectrum. This article is different but I encourage you to read it because it's. he says this is my most extreme political opinion. It's a different story it's about why I think prisons shouldn't exist. It's worth reading because he's not a strong ideologue and I want people to read it to see how they react to it. I'm not going to defend it Uh, But we'll talk about some of it. Anyway, the other reason is that it's really about what do you get when you incarcerate people? He takes a pretty extreme position. He says, I got three points to make. First of all, imprisoning a person is immoral. The second thing is, okay, it wouldn't be, maybe you could get used to that if imprisonating incarceration actually works. It doesn't work, doesn't work in the United States, doesn't lower the crime rate. The evidence that it has any good things to say are pretty limited. The third thing that he then, his third point is, okay, there are other alternatives. All right. So my take on his take is that the argument about prisons being immoral is a pretty compelling argument, but there are other compelling arguments that people make all the time about the morality of prison. I'm not going to make, I'm not here to judge which ones are right, but Saul's main point about the immorality is that it's immoral to treat people this way. You don't treat animals this way. You essentially lock people up, you give them bad food, uh, you give them bad circumstances. Does that sound like what our prisons are like? You isolate them, um, we don't allow that to be done to animals. We allow it to, done here, to be done here. But as I say, there are religious arguments that people make uh, and that some of the listeners are likely to make. But the second thing is really the, where the rubber hits the road um, because the evidence is pretty good that, well, first of all, it's compelling evidence that we incarcerate more than any country in the world. Our incarceration rate is enormous. One out of every 30 people uh, is involved somehow with the incarceration system. Not not just police, but with incarceration. That doesn't count the families who are impacted. So if you look at the evidence, there is very little rehab that's done. The recidivism rate is high. It doesn't seem to affect the crime rate. And in fact, prison, there's an argument to be made that prison makes you more likely to recidivist because of the kind of atmosphere you're in there and when you go out. This is kind of old stuff, but it's old stuff in the way that it's established stuff. That That's the pretty good thing. The third thing is that there are other alternatives, rehab and so on. The, the third thing 
the third thing is interesting because there are other alternatives. The alternatives usually aren't used, but if you look at what he says in defense of the alternatives, he used Norway, for example. He says, look, Norway's got a lower recidivism rate, but they treat human, they treat prisoners differently. They don't take away their right to vote. There's strong rehab and job training thing. But then he adds what I think is the real kicker that makes it hard to do. Norway's society is, mu- and, and they arrest, they, they incarcerate less. Norway's society is much more, the culture is much more approving of that kind of, of uh, approach as opposed to what I think is American culture, which isn't very much. So finally then, how does that apply to Hawaii? It applies in a couple of ways to Hawaii. It's pretty clear that our prison system is lousy. Um, It's understaffed. um, It's overcrowded. uh, We send people, instead of keeping prisoners here so they have some chance to maintain contacts with families, we ship a lot of prisoners away. There really isn't anything good that you can say about the prison system here. Really, that's a uh, a fairly good argument. The problem is that, and this is what's playing out here now, is that you have this kind of tension between the pull to incarcerate and the kind of a pull to decarcerate, to reduce the number of who go to prison. And you're seeing that playing out in a couple of ways here. One way is the building a new prison. The, the new prison, which should have been built long ago. It's stymied. It, yeah, it's stymied. <laughs> it's held hostage to the dynamics of this argument about, uh, about incarceration versus decarceration. There are a group of people who say, we need a big prison. We need a good prison because look at how many people are going to prison. The other side makes the argument there should be more attempts to keep the prison smaller by doing other things that are more effective, um, decriminalizing certain kinds of activities. Yeah. Bail reform. Bail reform, you know, bail reform, have other kinds of programs that might, that uh, are legally coercive about dealing with prisoners or dealing with criminals, but are not, don't don't require them to be locked up. It appears as if uh, what's happened to that prison built in the last few years is that whoever the powers that be are saying, until you work that out, we're not going to give any money. Well, you know, our prisons are probably constitutionally marginal at, at best. So you have that. The other thing that, of course, is interesting here is at the same time, in a community that has relatively low crime rates, you have this kind of strong pressure to crack down to crack down in Waikiki, uh, if you look at the Nextdoor website, so on. And that's the final point that I want to make here, and that is how much of people's attitudes toward incarceration and crime is based on the power of a crime story. If you, if that is, there's a couple of ways to look at crime. One is the crime statistics, where Hawaii doesn't look all that bad, certainly much better than, than most other cities. But then there's the power of the story, the power of the story that you get from the media about what's uh, crime in Waikiki, personal things, the kind of power of the story that you get on next door on, on the blog where at 9.36 I was looking out the window and I saw this kind of stuff. And that kind of dynamic tends to 
overcome any other kind of dynamic. And so you focus on coercion, and you don't think about the broader stuff in the community. Well, yeah, I mean, for folks who just say, well, what about the sense of justice, you know? Well, yeah. You've done me wrong, you know, and, and someone's got to pay, and how do you pay? Well, someone has to pay, but there's a, you know, that's a theory of behavior there. If you think someone has to pay, and that's retribution, that's, of course, one of the moral arguments that's made in favor of... Um, of incarceration. The other part of it is to say, okay, for the sake of argument, let's say that that's part of it, but isn't also part of it that you want to change people to, to rehabilitate? And then we get into the very controversial area of what works and what doesn't. Yeah, and then you could go down another path, you know, just the, the capital punishment, right? Uh, please, oh, yeah. can I have well, some gruel? Chop off your hand because you, you well, stole sure, something. Well, sure, sure. But people are, you know, even people who are not so sympathetic toward that and even don't like capital punishment, they still get the sense you've got to do certain things. One of the things that other places have tried to do is to focus on the hardcore and to make sure you just get them off the streets and, and the rest of it. Always remember that fighting crime is sort of like fighting cancer. We used to talk about a war against cancer. War against cancer is a war against cancers because mm -hmm. they're all different. The war right. against crime is a war against crimes because crimes come from very different places, involve very different relationships. Yeah. Lots of things to unpack there. But thank you so much. We'll have to check out that article. <laughs> oh, yeah. Please do. Okay. Thank you. We've been talking with our contributing editor, Neil Milner, this morning about the changing perception of prisons. We will have a link to the articles he mentioned on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we hear from a few graduates that have recently gone through the Accelerate Hawaii Pre-X program. We'll find out what they learned during the four-week intensive and how this prepares them for running their business, finding investors, or even preparing for an accelerator. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone in Kaka'ako Makai, where OHA plans to create a Hawaiian space in an urban setting, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Hakuone.com. The beetle battle, specifically the coconut rhinoceros beetle. It's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Thomas Heaton is on with us today. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. So, yeah, coconut rhinoceros beetle. Those are some pretty gnarly looking things. They sure are. They are, yeah, they are sure, they are definitely very, very voracious, these beetles. Um, of course, they've been here for a while, but um, earlier this yeah, the um, the people charged with trying to deal with this uh, beetle about an inch long has a horn, kind of like a triceratops. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the the war against them to try and eradicate them was you know uh, announced to be uh, a fruitless endeavor uh, given current funding but yeah so today um Civil Beat published my story on a novel, I guess, slightly novel kind of solution or management um, tool uh, for for the beetle problem, and that's essentially let's grow smaller coconut trees so that we can get closer to the problem, and also let's grow coconuts that we can harvest without having to climb 100 feet. <laughs> this is true. Now, your article <laughs> yeah. also points out, really, that, that um, we discovered this, like, Ten years ago, and I think they hitchhiked mm. on some military equipment or some such thing because the military was hammering it when it fir- when they first made the discovery on their golf courses. Yeah, so it was around um, the joint base um, at Hickam um, that it was initially found, and uh, the military did do a pretty good job of dealing with it in its own areas, but. Um, the beetle can fly it can and it transports itself and its um, larvae transports through compost um, and clippings and cuttings from coconut trees so did a very good job of settling it across Oahu um, and just given the amount of funding or the lack of funding that was given to the Department of Agriculture um, the problem has just become embedded um, and Darcy Oishi, the acting head of the um, plant division at the Department of Agriculture, has said, we're looking at millions and millions of dollars if we want to uh, manage the issue and millions more if we want to really eradicate them. Um, So these young coconut, these small coconut trees, um, which grow about to a third of the size of the ones you might see in Waikiki, are one potential management solution because um, the alternative is... Yeah, a rather expensive and scary endeavour that we will have to wait and see if lawmakers are willing to um, foot the bill for. Well, these little trees, you know, I don't know, they call them dwarf trees, but I mean, I have I have some mm. in my neighbourhood, and I always thought they were a great idea because you could get to the coconuts very, very easily, you know, and harvest them without climbing the darn thing. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, you can you can manage them better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I spoke to one um, coconut grower, farmer on Kauai who's been, um, who's got some land where they've been growing uh, the trees for about 20 years uh, and you know they they are just as um, they grow just as many coconuts as their, their larger brothers and sisters um, and there's really quite a few different varieties that have different characteristics they also are resistant to quite bad weather um so yeah there there seems to be a bit of interest as well because that grower that i spoke to has just recently sold a few hundred to mahipono on maui so you know there there is a bit of interest there but of course um it isn't a a necessarily a fix you know the coconut rhinoceros beetle still likes these little coconut trees um so it's just a matter of really being a bit more fastidious, monitoring the uh, trees a bit more and um, trying to really stay on top of the problem. Well, you know, we still see those um, kind of Halloweenish traps, those black traps hanging from trees, you mm. know, that are that are checked regularly. Um, so, yeah, those are those are um, a bit of an eyesore. But, you know, they, they I guess they've got to track it, figure out, you know, where it's at, where we have a bad infestation. 
Yeah, it really comes down to a lot of community vigilance. I was told by uh, the by Darcy Oishi of the Department of Agriculture. One thing that they have done is they've been able to uh, get some funding to uh, install cameras so that they will be able to really monitor the issue without having the required um, massive manpower to, you know, track these. I think it's three thousand traps across this across the island. Yeah, um, pretty. But pretty. of course. It's pretty intensive. Sorry. It's pretty intensive. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, we want to keep it on Oahu if, um, because across, it, could, it has a potential to really spread across the entire state, and that could be rather devastating. That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you. That was reporter Thomas Heaton with today's Reality Check. You can read his CRB story uh, on civilbeat.org. Support sustainability reporting on HPR. Adela's country eatery in Kaneohe has been innovating ways to become more sustainable. I like ulu. Ulu is a lot of fiber. And I like moringa. Then the mix is kalo and Okinawa sweet potato and avocado. Donna Shapiro, general manager of the Hawaii Ulu Cooperative, says she's excited about the recent rollout of recipe-ready packs of Hawaii-grown staples. In addition to ulu, we have kalo, uala, and palaai, or pumpkin. We're really trying to make these products accessible for families in Hawaii, for everyday consumers. Hawaii imports over 99% of its staple foods, primarily rice, wheat, and potatoes. So by transitioning to eat more locally grown staples, you are making a huge difference to the food security of our islands, the economic resilience, the viability of farming. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. Is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and we now go to this week's Manu Minute with the warbling call of the Majiro, or the Japanese wide-eye bird. These little guys were first introduced to help with pest control, but soon became beloved for their melodious song. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. The warbling wide-eye, or majiro, is a non-native bird that was first introduced to Hawaii from Japan in 1929. It is now the most common bird in all of Hawaii, occurring just about everywhere. They're green and gray with a very distinctive white ring around their eyes, and they're only about four inches tall. So small, they're more often heard than seen. White-eyes are known as generalists. They eat a variety of foods such as insects, fruit, and nectar. They're considered competitors when they live in the same forest as our native birds. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Department of Biology at the University of Hawaii at Hilo.
It's time now for your backyard quiz answer. We told you about the outdoor mosaic designed by abstract expressionist Tadashi Sato. Installed in 1969, Aquarius is based on his painting by the same name and celebrates the natural beauty of the islands. Up close, it may look like a jumbled mash of colors, but if you change your vantage point to the second or third floor of the Capitol building, what emerges are circular shapes of stones submerged underwater. Aquarius has needed a touch-up over the years. It was renovated first in 1988 and again in 2005, which was the answer we were looking uh, for in today's backyard quiz. Uh, the second update, including uh, using 600,000 mosaic titles with 57 colors of various shades of blue and green and white. Other structural symbolism can be found at our capital. Uh, each of the 60-foot high columns represent palm trees, and the two legislative chambers represent the volcanoes that the islands were birthed from. That's today's quiz. Uh, we had no winners today. If you have an idea for a quiz to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we continue our look at adaptive reuse. We do plan to hear from the city's director of planning and permitting, Donna Pana. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.